Well, one of the ways that we fix our eyes on Jesus is uh, as we receive communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that later in the service. In fact, there's a good chance that we'll do that kind of in the middle of the sermon. Um, we don't normally do it that way, but there, as you follow along the sermon, you'll see that. I just wanted to prep you for that and say this, uh, which I'll probably not say then. If you, We have four communion tables set up, two in the front and two in the back, and when we invite you to go to one of those, we'll invite you to go there. And if you're gluten-free, uh, we also have some gluten-free option on this front one and the front right, uh, so you can be aware of that. How many of you were born at some point, uh, well, that would be everybody, um, but specifically you were born between uh, 1956 and 1975. Can I see your hands if you're, you were born? Okay, during those years, uh, there was an old TV show called Truth or Consequences, and Bob Barker uh hosted it during those years. In fact, the show, apparently, it, it was a radio show to begin with. It became a TV show and lasted a, a number of years. And they would bring these contestants up and they would ask them a question and it was going to be either truth or consequences. And they gave them like two seconds to answer the question. But they were always ridiculous questions that nobody could answer. So they would always have to pay the consequence by doing some funny stunt. And some people actually... Uh, decided that they weren't even going to try to answer the question, right? Because they wanted to do the consequence. Well, when that, before it became a TV show, while it was a radio show, the host of it made this announcement. They were about to have their 10th anniversary. And they said, whatever town in America will be willing to change the name of their town to truth or consequences, we're going to come host the show in your town. And so if you are riding, some of you know, I see some handshakes. If you've been out west, you will see this sign, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. There was a little town called Hot Springs, New Mexico, that changed the name of their town to Truth or Consequences. Well, in some ways, although all of that is a little bit silly and, and, and not real, today's sermon is titled Truth or Consequences because we're going through the book of Genesis here at Harvest. Today we're at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, the main characters in the story that we're going to look at, are facing a choice at the beginning of Genesis 3 about whether they are going to obey God's truth believe God's truth, and if they do, it'll be wonderful, but if they don't, there will be consequences. Now, they lived in a perfect environment. I mean, they were given everything that you could imagine. It was a beautiful environment. They were perfect. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no anxiety. God was there in the garden. The garden was beautiful. There was plenty of food. There was work. There were you know, there was the ability to be productive. They were just set up perfectly. And yet Satan entered in and used a, a serpent to come and tempt Eve to sin, which he did, and which she did. And the way he attacked her, we learned last week, was by starting attacking God's word. Did God really say this? And then he started denying God's word. Well, God, that's really not going to happen the way God told you. It's going to turn out much better for you. And he questioned God's goodness. How could God say, be restrictive to you in that way? And that's the way he works with us. When we're tempted to sin, it's always an attack on God's word. And you know the story. She fell and she gave the fruit also to Adam, her husband, who was right there with her, and he also fell. In fact, he was the designated federal head of the human race, and so in, in that sense, all of us fell at that point. Well, that's about as far as we got in the story last week, and today we're going to pick back up, and I invite your attention uh, to Genesis 3.14. We're going to look at the the last few verses of this chapter. And we're going to find out since they did not live in the truth, 
what the consequences were. And the consequences were great on them and the consequences we can see in our world today. And we'll, we'll develop that some as we go along. Genesis 3, let me read uh, these verses uh, for us. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14. And this is right after they had sinned. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's God's word for us today. Here's what this passage teaches us. Sin brings consequences, but God brings grace. Sin brings consequences, but God brings grace. That's what we're going to do today as we walk through this. We're going to to see the consequences that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And we're going to also see how in spite of those terrible consequences... God overcomes through His grace. Now, I have I have a few disagreements theologically with uh, Brian McLaren. However, he gives some very helpful analogies in regard to sin. He said, if life is a machine, then sin is a bad gear that makes the machine malfunction. If life is a kingdom, then sin is a terrorist movement in the kingdom. If life is a family then sin is a feud between family members. If life is a body, then sin is an untreated disease that poisons the whole system. If life is a river, then sin is mercury or arsenic that pollutes it. If life is a garden, then sin is the army of slugs that eat your tomatoes. If life is a computer, then sin is a virus that destroys your hard drive. Now let's look at the, the, the consequences of sin. If you're, if you're taking notes, you have an outline sheet there and there's, there's a chart that lists the effect of sin on the serpent, the effect on the woman, and the effect on the man. So let's take each one of these. We'll walk through the passage. We'll apply it to our lives as we, as we go along in particular at the end. So what about this serpent that Satan used? Remember, the serpent wasn't the enemy itself. It was just an animal that Satan was using. Lord God said to the serpent, though, because because you have done this, cursed to you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, God's judgment is never arbitrary. It's based in this instance. If we watch the different consequences, the different punishments that happen, they're all based on what the action was. 
The serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. But now because of what happened here, now the it, it's going to be set apart in a negative way. And it's a way that signals humiliation because through the Bible, uh, there are several instances where eating dust was a symbolic way of saying that somebody would be humbled. And so that was the consequence for the serpent. One of the consequences was was humiliation. That's what it's about, about that serpent crawling on the ground. Of course, I, I honestly admit it. I'm, I'm securing my manhood, so I can tell you, it creeps me out today. Snakes creep me out. I'm not afraid to say that. I don't know if that's tied in with a curse or not, but this is what happened. There was definite humiliation there. Satan triumphant. He triumphed in the garden. He won over Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lost there. Satan won. But part of the consequence, since this was sinful, since this was wrong, another element that we would leave there is going to lead to his ultimate defeat. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, enmity is war or conflict. So in other words, before this, there was no war, there was no conflict, there was no battle going on. But now, as a result of this, there is a spiritual battle that has been going on ever since the Garden of Eden, and it's going on today. There are forces of evil led by Satan that want to stop the work of God, that want to deny the word of God, that want to hurt God's people, that want to keep people who are not believers from becoming believers in Christ and following him. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. Every time we try to take a step forward for God, you can count on there'll be a battle. There'll be a war that's going on. It's going on here. It's mentioned here. And interestingly, God looks at the serpent and says, you know what? There is, there's going to be a casualty. There are going to be casualties in this battle. There is going to be an injury and a total defeat. The injury is striking his heel. You, Satan, God looks at the serpent, really through to Satan at this point, and saying, the woman's offspring is going, you're going to strike his heel. And of course, if you think about a snake bite on the foot. But he is going to crush your head. Interestingly, the words crush and strike, they're no, they're no different in the Hebrew original. They come from the same word. It's just the point about where the strike is. Any injury to your head is going to be worse than an injury to your foot, right? So this is what's happening. In this battle, in this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan then Satan is going to be able to strike. He's going to be able to do some damage and some injury to this person that's mentioned in Genesis 3.15. And yet that person is going to crush Satan's head. December 7th, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And President Franklin Roosevelt declared war at that time, and he issued these famous words. It was a war that was going to eventually cost 50 million lives. And he said this, this is the day which will live in infamy. James Merritt, a pastor, writes this, at the beginning of time, Satan dropped his bomb of sin on the Garden of Eden. And God basically said, this is the day that will live in infamy. On that day, God declared war against sin, against Satan, and against anyone who would continue to rebel against him. So on the chart, not only was there humiliation, we can add defeat by woman's offspring. Verse 15 doesn't mention the name of Jesus Christ, but this is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's already there in seed form. It's the first gospel, as it were. It's the first good news. It's where God is countering Satan's attack. It's essentially God is saying, okay, yes, you're an instrument. You brought in sin and, and it hurt and it's going to hurt, 
but this woman that you deceived is going, there's going to be an offspring that comes from her. And that offspring is going to be somebody that you fight against and you, you strike his heel, but this offspring is going to crush your head. It's interesting. The word offspring, it's a good translation, but literally it's in the original seed which is really interesting. It occurs more than 300 times in the Bible. And this is the only place that it describes a seed of a woman because technically the seed comes from the man, right? In the reproductive process, man provides his part and the woman provides the eggs. And so it's always everywhere else in the Bible it's used of a man producing seed. And yet here he says, the woman's seed, the woman's offspring. Now, what is, what is he getting at? I think we have to think of a prophecy like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Only God is capable of creating something like the virgin birth where a virgin would be able to conceive without the help of a human father. I think that's what's in view here. I think God is prophesying already, even before Isaiah, that a day is coming, that there's going to be an offspring, there's going to be a seed. He's not going to come from man. And you know what? I'm glad he didn't come from man. Because think about what we just talked about. If you were here last week, we talked about Romans 5 and how Romans 5 picks up on Genesis 3. You had the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam sinned, the original Adam sinned, and Christ never sinned. And everybody is either in Adam or in Christ, but everybody that is in Adam was made a sinner when Adam sinned. So if Jesus Christ had been born of a human father's seed, he would have been sinful. And so now in Genesis 3, we're getting this picture thousands of years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene that there's going to be a cosmic battle and his foot is going to be injured, but through it he is going to crush Satan's head. Now, where did that happen? What do we know? What situation do we know happened where Jesus was hurt, where Jesus was struck, and yet in his being struck, he was crushing Satan's head? We need to look at the cross. John chapter 19 verse 30, tells about when Jesus is dying on the cross and he's taking on the sin of the world. He's accomplishing something and he, and he says, I'm thirsty. And they give him something to drink that's bitter. And it says, when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. That's it. It's done. The work of salvation, the work of redemption is done. He's paid the price. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew's part of Matthew's version. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And look what happens at that moment. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rock split. And the tombs broke apart. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and all those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Today... We are going to take communion. In fact, we are going to stop the sermon. Don't want to get your hopes up. The sermon's not over yet. About 40% into it. But we are going to stop for a minute and take communion because I want you to think about this. Abraham, if you'll join me up here. I want you to think about this. Think how 
We think of the cross in the, it, today and it becomes routine. It becomes standard. We forget how special it is. We forget what is happening there. But that was the major stage of battle between God and Satan. And that's when God said, here is my offspring and my offspring is coming and through him, Satan is going to be put down. Satan is strong. Satan is powerful. We see how he can wreck lives. He still wrecks lives today. He causes hatred and bitterness and division and wars and all kind of terrible things. But I have great news. Here's the good news of the gospel today. Jesus suffered and died for you and me and he paid the price on the cross and he also won victory over sin, Satan, and death on that cross. And that's what we're going to celebrate today. We're going to invite you in a minute to just take your time as the music is playing, go to one of these tables and take a piece of bread that will stand for his broken body. To take a cup that stands for his blood. And of course, this is an opportunity for us to thank him. It's an opportunity for us to confess our sins, to examine ourselves, to make sure we're walking with him properly. And it's also an, an opportunity for us to look forward until the day he returns. Because he said, as often as you do this, you do this until I come. So let's just bow our heads for a minute. Let me pray for us. And after I pray, we'll invite you to spend some time. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and love him, I encourage you to come receive this communion that represents his sacrifice. If you're... If you don't know him, I encourage you just to sit and enjoy and and open your heart to him. Because taking these elements by themselves without a relationship with him will not do you any good. We want you to know him. We want you to open your heart and receive him by faith into your life. Lord Jesus, there's so much bad news in our world. In many ways, there's been bad news through the generations. So much disappointment and hurt and strife and division. Today, Lord, we celebrate your victory. We remember you, Lord. We remember that your Going to the cross is what bought our salvation. So help us to be clean before you, to worship you, and to remember you well. We pray it in Jesus' name. So we would add the grace in this Jesus victory at the cross. The consequences on the serpent, there was humiliation. There would ultimately be defeat by the woman's offspring who would be Jesus. And this is where we see the grace of God in it, Jesus' victory at the cross. Well, now let's let's turn and let's continue in the passage and we're, we're going to see the effect on the woman and the effect on the man. Verse 16 gives us the effect on the woman. To the woman, he said, this is God speaking, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The punishment for the woman impacts in two critical areas, childbirth and her relationship with her husband. And so the first consequence there obviously is painful labor. I'm not going to try to describe the pain of labor because I'm afraid my wife will inflict pain on me afterwards for attempting as a man to describe something that I cannot understand. That was the first consequence. Pain in childbearing that's very severe. The second is your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's conflict in the marriage relationship. Eve chose to step outside of God's ordained 
pattern. God had appeared to eat to Adam. And he had said to Adam, he gave Adam the responsibility for naming the animals, gave Adam the responsibility for bringing those things under dominion. And he told Adam, look, I'm going to put you in a garden and I'm going to get, let you eat out of any of these trees except for one. Adam was designed to take the spiritual leadership in the family. This was before Eve was even born. And yet, in this instant, obviously, we know because she quoted to the serpent almost identically what God had said to Adam, but with a few significant changes. So when the serpent comes to it's interesting that he comes to Eve, that he doesn't go directly to Adam, but, but Adam is right there. Eve chooses to deal with the serpent herself. She chooses to make the decision herself. She chooses to take the initiative and the leadership herself. There's no record, there's no reason for us to think that she turned to Adam and said, well, Adam, honey, sweetie, baby, whatever she called him, what do you think we ought to do here? That you, if I heard you right, you... I think you said God said that we're not supposed to eat. We can eat out all these trees except for one. But this serpent over here is telling me something different. What do you think we should do? We don't get that. She's deceived by the serpent and she takes and she eats. She sinned. And unfortunately, Adam sat there passively and watched her and then participated himself. And so God says, as a result, your desire now is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, in a couple of weeks, when we get to the story of Cain and Abel, we're going to see one of the other few instances of the word, this very same word desire. And that's where in the story of Cain and Abel, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door for you. Its desire is for you. In other words, God is warning Cain that sin wants to master him. Sin wants to dominate him. Sin wants to control him. And that's, I think, what the meaning is here. Just like sin wanted to dominate or master Cain, the woman, as a result of sin, will want to master or dominate her husband. But God had ordained that man would lead. And so if God has ordained that man, the husband would be the spiritual leader and the wife is wanting to be the dominant one and the manipulative one, that's going to create conflict. That's going to create problems in marriage. And problems in marriage would not have existed apart from sin. So the consequence of that choice is conflict in marriage. It's power struggles. If you ever have a power struggle in your marriage, go back and blame Adam and Eve. Well, that won't do any good. We're not about blame, right? But this is how we know. This is where it started. It started there and we inherited this sinful nature. And the tendency, the challenge for women is the desire to dominate and to manipulate. The challenge for men is to be passive and not take spiritual leadership. And when that happens, that creates a problem. Let's talk about the second half of the verse, which sounds harsh at its first reading, but we, must, we need to understand it biblically. Your, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, is this sanctioning male domination or harsh treatment of wives? I would say absolutely not. If you compare... The, the words that are used about dominion in Genesis, this is not the same word that's used when Adam was given dominion over the animals. That word that was used did indicate domination and total control over the animals. It's a different word that's used here. In the classic New Testament passage on marriage, Ephesians 5, the submission of the wife to the husband is placed in the larger context of mutually submitting to one another. Paul the Apostle also in Colossians 3.19 urges husbands to love and protect their wives without harshness. And not only husband and wives, he also extended it 
beyond marriage and taught that men should treat their sisters in Christ in a gentle, loving manner. I think John Piper makes an important point in one of his sermons about this particular issue that helps us understand what God's original intention was and what happened when sin came in. He says, when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought headship and submission into existence. They were already in existence. But because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulation in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. I think that's a good word. Godly, loving, tender, Male leadership in a marriage is God's design. And respectful, willing submission, intelligent submission of the wife to the husband is God's design. And you know what? If there wasn't sin in the world, we would all get along great. (laughs) And there wouldn't be power struggles and there wouldn't be difficulties and challenges in marriage. But sin, this is a consequence of sin. There's going to be conflict in marriage relationship. Well, is there any grace here? In spite of this command and or this reality of what's happening, there is grace. And let me mention a couple of them. The, the fact that women will be able to bear children is a grace. Yes, it is painful. And no, I cannot understand it. But it is a great grace to, to be able to bear children. And secondly... This can drive willing souls to God. I derived this thought from Kent Hughes. I hadn't really thought about this beforehand in this way, but he said the grace in all of this is there's a sense of dis-ease and dissatisfaction in what ought to be the most rewarding areas of life. Bliss, perfect peace is no woman's lot in this world. Marriage alone will give no woman all she wants Mothering is fraught with pain from birth onward. Nothing completely satisfies. This is a grace because it will drive the willing soul to seek God. That's an interesting way to put it. But if you think about it, every good gift comes from God and every ounce of life that we can enjoy and if you're married and you can enjoy that and if you have children and you can enjoy that we can enjoy it and we can thank God for it but we know that none of those things brings the ultimate full final unfailing satisfaction and that's designed to point us to something greater and that is to seek God and I think that's the grace that's there well what about for the man we get that in verses 17 to 19 there to Adam God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, of course, men, we know it's wise to listen to our wives. But it's not wise to listen to them or our children or our friends or anybody else who is encouraging us to disobey God. And that's what Eve was doing. She encouraged Adam to disobey God. God said this, I ate it. Here, Adam, why don't you eat it too? And God says, because you listened to that and disobeyed and acted on your own, there are going to be some consequences and life is never going to be the same for you. Work is never going to be the same for you. And so we, the first consequence is toil and labor. This is striking the man, Adam, at his nerve center, as it were, work, productivity, sustenance, 
Work itself is not cursed or it's not a result of the curse. Work came before the the fall. Work came before they sinned. Work was designed to give to give Adam something useful to do. And we're made that way. We want to contribute. We want to produce. And yet because of that, now there's toil in work. God gave work as a blessing and a curse, but I think it's legitimate to apply this to all kind of work, but certainly to, to work that involves the ground and agriculture it, it doesn't just, grass and, and, and plants don't just grow nice and neat without weeds and this. If, you, if you've tried to plant a lawn, especially in the south, I think the, the land in the south is cursed. Midwest, when we live in Chicago, the soil was deep and dark and rich, but I'm sure it was cursed too. But work is hard. Work brings toil. Anytime... Anytime we work to try to produce something, there there are always extra challenges because of sin. So there's toil in labor. And then he adds to it. He says, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. After a life of toiling, what happens? You die. You return to dust from which you came. Now, Eve, interestingly, does not get the death sentence here, although she, of course, will die as a human being. But Adam was the one that bore the responsibility for sin. Romans tells us that, that Adam is the one who sinned, and through Adam, death came. Now, obviously, Romans says the wages of sin is death. Adam didn't die in that moment, but his body began to die. And God also said, you know what? At this point, I am going to remove you from the garden so you'll not be able to be rejuvenated by eating from this tree of life. So what about grace? Terrible consequence, but do we see God? Do we see any grace here? Well, first of all, there's sustenance from the ground. Even though it involves work, even though it involves toil, even though it's hard, God still allowed Adam to produce things and and see the benefit of it. And the second one is the groaning confirms the hope of God's children. We live in such a broken world. Our world is absolutely broken. And there's this groaning. And I, I love, there's there's a passage. That there, there's You know how there, there are Bible commentaries that human authors write? And it's about a certain passage. I think there's a divine commentary on these verses, and it's in Romans chapter 8. I want us to turn there, our attention, for a couple of minutes. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 24, is Paul the Apostle's commentary on what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. Paul said, I considered that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Verse 19, the creation, the physical creation is waiting right now for God to step in and bring redemption, bring this fullness of adoption that he, he's been talking about in Romans. And the creation is waiting. The creation is groaning for it. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of one of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. I think the Romans 8 passage, it doesn't give all of the answers. We probably never will have all of the answers in human life. 
But I think this is a part of the answer to that age-old question that you have probably wrestled with or possibly had an unbeliever ask you as objecting to God. If God is good, why is there, and you fill in the blank in the world, why is there suffering in the world? If, if, if you say that God is good, why is there such evil in the world? I don't believe the scripture teaches that God is the immediate cause of every bad thing that happens in life. You get in your car, you're driving to church, and you have a flat tire on the way to church. I don't think God necessarily caused you to have a flat tire on the way to church. I don't think Satan necessarily fought against you to keep you from going to church. I think either one of those is possible, but I don't think we have biblical grounds to say that either one of those happened in that way. It may be there just happened to be a nail in the road and you happen to run over it and we live in a world where there's nails and tires and tires go flat. We live in a world where our cars break down. We live in a world where our bodies break down. We live in a world where there's sickness, where there's cancer, where there's heart disease, where there's liver failure where there are broken bones. We live in a world where there's broken relationships. Why? Because of Genesis chapter 3. And so rather than saying, if there's a good God, why did God do this specific thing? I think we would say, God create. what kind of world did God create? And what was the world like between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3? And it was a perfect world, and there was no sickness, there was no death, there was, there, there was no hatred or animosity, and sin entered the world, and then the curse came, and now we all live, although it's a beautiful world, it's a wonderful world, it's a broken world, that's under the curse and under the fall. And we are waiting right now. In fact, the whole creation is waiting and groaning because the creation was cursed. And we're waiting for that day when God says, I am stepping in and I'm making all things new. And I want to tell you something, that day is coming. That day is coming and when he returns and when he makes everything right, we will have the adoption to sonship. We will have the redemption of our bodies. And God is going to create what? A new heaven and new earth. And at that point, there will no longer, we won't have those questions anymore. Why is this person sick? Why, why is this relationship broken? Because God is going to repair everything. Does that make sense? Again, I think this is helpful for us to understand that. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying there's an immediate cause and effect. I'm not saying if, if something goes wrong with you physically or something, or you have problems, that means you've sinned to cause that specific thing. It's just we're in this broken world system to which we're all subject. But I'm so thankful that God is going to make everything right. Well, there's, there's more hope as we start to wrap the passage up. There's even more hope in the passage. There's Adam naming Eve, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Hebrew for Eve means living. And Adam names his wife Eve because she is going to be the mother of all living. All human life is, has its human source in her body. And then there's God clothing them in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. At this point, Adam and Eve are broken and they're ashamed and they're vulnerable. And what does God do? God pronounces the punishment, but he also starts meeting their needs graciously. He clothes them with animal skins to cover their embarrassment to prepare them for the new hostile environment in which they're going to have to live. They're not, they're not going to live in a perfect environment like the garden anymore. So this was a practical, gracious help. And I think it also pictures the way that God clothes us. In fact, in Scripture, justification, which is 
how God treats us as not that we have never sins. It's God knows that we're guilty, but he treats us as innocent. That's what justification is. There's a picture in justification, and that is a robe of righteousness. God puts a robe of righteousness on us. Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Revelation 19, the picture in heaven. The apostle John says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for the Lord our our Lord God Almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clear was given for her to wear and finally there's one more picture of hope here and that's even the exile even their being exiled out of the garden of Eden could become a good thing for them. It could lead them to pursue God. Verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that was a gracious thing right there because in their sinful state, it seems as if they were to eat the tree of life in their sinful state, they would perpetually be in that sinful state. So God doesn't allow them to do that. He expels them from the garden. He banishes them from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after driving the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Think about it. It was hard. It was incredibly hard for them to be banished from this beautiful garden that God had made, but the grace in it could be this. They're in the presence of God and they sinned. And think about it. If we could sin and still be in the presence of God and enjoy the presence of God, that, that, that would be a disconnect. Because sin separates us from God. So the very fact that God said, I am going to physically separate you from this environment is a constant reminder, wow, we sin. We need God. Our life is, our life is not good. And we're going to see over the next few weeks in Genesis, we're going to see what sin does. Boom. It goes, the story for a while goes downward, downward, Cain and Abel. Noah. I mean, just things just go down and down because this is what sin does. And God is gracious in the sense that by banishing them physically from the garden, hopefully it reminds them they need God. They need to pursue God. And that can be the grace for them. Well, let me wrap it up. Let me give you three things to remember. There, there are two things on your outline, so the first one's not on the outline. But this is a little bit of a, a summary of what I've said. This is why things are the way they are because of sin. This is why bad things happen. This is why there's cancer and heart disease and mental illness and relational challenges, war, prejudice, hatred, cheating, lying, murder, gossip, and betrayal. It's not because God is not good or God is not capable of changing it. One day is going to set everything right. But this right here, this passage right here explains why our world is the way it is. Secondly, or number one on your sheet, Satan always lies and sin always costs dearly. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar sums up well the terrible price of sin. He says sin will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you're willing to pay. And then finally, Jesus won and gives us the victory over Satan and sin. Jesus won the victory over Satan and sin. Jesus gives us the victory over Satan and sin. I hope that today this has been a great reminder and explanation about how terrible sin is and the consequences of sin. But I hope we don't go away defeated. I hope we don't go away hopeless. I hope we go, wait a minute, our Savior Jesus did something about that. He won that victory over it and He also can give me the victory over sin. Romans sixteen twenty, Paul said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus 
be with you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. A law school professor used to begin his first class every day by writing two numbers up on the board, four and two. And then he would just ask, what's the solution? And one student would say, six. Shake his head. One student would say, two. And shake his head. One student would say, eight. And he would shake his head. And after this went on for a while, he would say to them, there's one reason why, the main reason why you've not been able to come up with the right answer is because you've failed to ask the key question. What is the problem? What is the problem? Class, unless you know what the problem is, you'll never find the solution. James Merritt says this, one sentence, we're living in a world that's trying to find a solution to a problem that it hasn't properly identified. There are a lot of problems in our world, but I think in many ways they all come back to this. The problem of our world is sin. At a personal level, at a national level, at an international level, and the world has not identified that. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Sin brings consequences. But God brings grace. That's why we praise God today for His victory. That's why we praise Him for His grace. That's why this church exists. To make disciples who make disciples. Because people are in bondage to sin and they need victory over sin and they can't find it on their own. They need to find it as a follower of Jesus Christ, as they become a disciple of Jesus who will then make other disciples. That's why we stress and we are urging every member of Harvest, every regular attender of Harvest who knows and loves Jesus to identify one person this year that you can pray for and love and build a relationship with or strengthen your relationship and introduce them to Christ because we know that sin brings consequences. But God brings grace. Let's bow our heads together, please. Let me give you just a minute to reflect on what you've heard. Thank God for... His grace, if, if you are hearing this message and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, a true believer in Him, I urge you that to see this today as good news that Jesus did come to die for you. You can receive Him by faith and begin following Him today. 